Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. My guest today is Dr. Bonita Stanton, founding dean of the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine at Seton Hall University. Born out of a partnership between Seton Hall and Hackensack Meridian Health, She previously served in various leadership roles at Wayne State University of Medicine, was chair of the Department of Pediatrics at West Virginia University School of Medicine, and vice chair of the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Stanton's career has focused on bringing the healing and compassion of healthcare to the world's most vulnerable people and improving health outcomes for all, regardless of race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or geographic location. She has consulted for numerous national and international agencies, including the World Health Organization, the World Bank, UNICEF, Elsevier, and USAID. Dr. Stanton is a nationally recognized academic leader and researcher, has authored over 300 peer-reviewed manuscripts, and has received numerous accolades for her research contributions in global HIV prevention. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Stanton. Oh, it's my pleasure, totally. <laughs> my, ours and our audiences as well. Um, just a personal note of, uh, of thanks and appreciation uh, in terms of how I met you. Um, Dr. Stanton uh, was one of the speakers at the American College of Healthcare Executives New Jersey annual meeting where uh, she introduced all of us as, uh, as members of the ACHE to the, the new School of Medicine, which is um, quite beautiful and very, very innovative. And in listening to your presentation, Dr. Stanton, I was just blown over um, in terms of your career, uh, your contribution to health and wellness, uh, not only here in the United States, but internationally as well. And with my background in, in public health and now uh, in, in working with physicians and clinicians and administrators in all sectors of the health industry, I, I, I really couldn't wait to have you on our podcast so that you could describe for us all of the work that you've done and your focus now as the founding dean um, of the School of Medicine. So thank you so much. 
Well, I have been very much looking forward to this. I think the podcast is a wonderful way to engage people from all walks, all careers, and across a wide geographic distribution. So it's just my privilege. Well, great, great. So um, I, I gave a, a little bit of a background about you. Are, are there any highlights that you'd like to share uh, just in terms of your trajectory uh, and how you came to become a founding dean? Uh, well, I, I did progress stepwise. Um, I was uh, a division chief initially at University of Maryland after returning from five years in Bangladesh. Um, and then eventually I did become the um, uh, vice chair of the Department of Pediatrics there. And as you mentioned, I then was chair of pediatrics at West Virginia uh, and then became chair at a much larger department that was at Wayne State University Department of Pediatrics, where I also headed up um, the um, children's um, hospital, the president of the practice plan at Children's Hospital. And after about 10 years in that position, I became the vice dean for research at Wayne State. So it was it was a very uh, stepwise progression. Um, I served in a number of national uh, positions over the course of the last few years. And, and so I had received occasional calls about my interest in a potential dean's position. Uh, but the opportunity to start a new medical school where you could establish your own vision and your own mission and hire the people that you really wanted to bring into that medical school from scratch was simply nothing that I could turn down. And so that's how I came to this position. Yeah, fantastic. And I'm very excited for you to describe for the audience because it is so innovative what the mission and the vision is of the new School of Medicine. Well, our vision is bold, and that is each person in New Jersey and eventually in the United States, regardless of race or socioeconomic status, will enjoy the highest levels of wellness in an economically, behaviorally sustainable fashion. And one of the advantages of a new school is that your mission can be derived directly to serve your vision. And so that's what our mission was designed. Um, and I, later I can talk to you about the process of how we came about doing this. But our mission is that all the medical students, uh, that is, who will become physicians, that we train in their delivery of the highest quality of care to all patients, will act on the understanding that context, community, and behavior drive well-being. Embrace and model our professional and our university's Catholic roots of reverence for the human condition, empathy towards suffering, excellence in medical care, and humility in service. Number three, continue to serve and learn from the engagement of underrepresented minority populations. And these populations will be um, distributed across our students, our faculty, our staff, and the communities that we are electing to work in. Um, we want to integrate lifelong learning and inquiry into our practice, uh, both in the terms of formal research, but also in the general practice um, parameters. And finally, we want to work in communion with scholars and, and practitioners of all many other disciplines to integrate their perspective, experiences, and tools. For too long, physicians have acted in isolation. 
So that's basically where we are for the, the vision and mission. And um, if you would like, I can describe a little the process of starting a new medical school, if you think that might be of interest to your listenership. I, I do I do believe that that would be, but I do, I do want to ask just a clarifying question, because I think that the work that this new school of medicine is doing and the mission and vision that you've described are are so important as it relates to creating uh, a cadre of clinicians. I know it's a medical school, but you also are training uh, nurse practitioners and physician assistants as well and other allied health professionals. But with a new uh, mindset and perspective about, as you mentioned, uh, leading the collaborative of providing uh, care to the sick, but also promoting health and wellness in the communities that we serve. And it is quite a departure from the way medical schools were designed in the, in the past. Um, so, so before you go into the process of how the mission and vision were evolved, I, I would love for you to describe uh, to us how this new medical school is 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 different than others that are out there, um, and you know, in particular about the way that the uh, students will be learning, um, their academic focus and their community focus. Yes, well, I'd be happy to do that. So, um, we will be working very closely with the College of Nursing and the School for um, um, Medical and Health Sciences. Um, both of which are located with our school on a separate uh, campus. We're, we're, not, we're no longer on the main campus of Seton Hall. Um, at the same time, we have been and have extensive collaborations with um, faculty from the law school, particularly their uh, department of uh, legal health services. Um, we're working very closely with the business school, uh, and then we have a lot of connections with the School of uh, Social Work and uh, some of the other schools at Seton Hall. And we are working with an engineering school in New Jersey as well, Stevens Engineer, uh, School College of Engineering. Um, and we'll be doing this, uh, these collaborations will be ongoing through all four years. Um, if our students stay for four years at the medical school. Uh, I mentioned if they stay for four years because we actually have a three-year core curriculum. And later, I can, as I'm describing how we develop the school, I can come to explain why we have the three-year core curriculum. Um, but in any case, all of these aspects will run throughout the, um, the course of, of the medical school. Um, and later, um, I can describe to you about the Human Dimension, which is a course that will run for all three or four years, which is focused on uh, the students working collaboratively with communities, with the same communities and with three families within those communities across their whole uh, school, uh, medical school experience. Um, in order to acquaint them with the kinds of things they'll be needing to think about and do if they really do want to bring about the uh, the vision and the mission that we've discussed. Excellent. Thank you for giving us a bit of a preview as we as we continue along our interview. So let's let's um let's go back to um, how the mission and vision were created for the medical school. It'd be great to understand that process. Well, um, 
when one is starting a new medical school, you really are starting with a blank slate. However, you're given a lot of guidance. The accreditation uh, body for allopathic medical schools in the United States is called the Liaison Committee for Medical Education, that I'll refer to as the LCME. And it's part of the, um, the AAMC. Uh, and so initially, there really is one person, and that is the dean. And then in a very staged manner, um, I went about um, hiring and otherwise identifying and involving leadership, including a dean's cabinet, which now is 12 people, um, School of Medicine chairpersons. Um, and these are derived from the faculty that's with the health network. There are 22 departments, so we have 22 uh, chairs. There are now uh, over 800 faculty members, clinical faculty members, as well as 11 medical science. That formerly would have been called basic science, but we also have several population health people in that that are hired directly by the school. And then, of course, we have a support staff that right now is about 65 people. Um, and this hiring is all um, organized around the, the questions that we have to answer for the LCME to their data gathering instrument that they call the data collection instrument, the DCI, that asks you to think and describe what you're going to do across 10, I would call, operational domains. So first, you have to describe the mission and the overall organization of the school, then a whole separate section on leadership and administration, one on the academic and learning environment. Then you have to describe the faculty, how you're going to go about getting them from where, then the educational resources, and then you get down quite deep into the curriculum. Uh, the educational competencies, the curricular objectives, the curricular design, um, the curricular content, and then, of course, management and evaluation of both the students and of your curriculum itself. Um, a whole section on teaching and supervision, and then quite a bit focused on medical student selection, assignment, progress. And the LCME is very concerned about academic support, career advising, health services, personal counseling, and financial aid for the students. So this is all spelled out in this 119 questions. Two of the questions have a yes, no answer, and several of the questions have a 30 or 40 page answer. So it ends up being quite voluminous, but you really think through the whole step. Um, obviously, when you're gonna create a whole curriculum, you're gonna be having um, great, enormous um, authority over the kind of people that you want to hire, and you're determined that it's going to be vision and mission directed, um, you begin with the vision and then with the mission. And that's exactly what we did. And we were initially a very small group. However, we pulled together about 55 people from across our partner institution, uh, Hackensack Meridian Health, and we spent two days developing the vision and mission together. We had a number of perspectives. We had some community members there. We had a lot of physicians. But we also had, as I've mentioned, some of the lawyers, many, many people from um, social work and psychology, 
um, and also some people from engineering because we wanted all these perspectives in coming up with the division and mission. Um, and that's what we did. Fantastic. And I really appreciate um, the, the thoughtfulness that went into choosing those that would serve on this steering committee for the mission, vision, and values. I'll, I'll just name it a steering committee for, for lack of a better way of describing it. Um, and also utilizing just such great talent from across all of the multiple schools um, that you have access to. And I, I imagine focusing on, you know, what's best for the the, 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 the human beings that we're ultimately serving um, as physicians, clinicians, health administrators, et cetera. Um, it, it, fascinating journey. I'm very appreciative of you sharing that with us. It's such an important part of any organization to get aligned on mission, vision, values, and uh, doing that uh, as a new school is uh, you know, of utmost importance. So th thank you for sharing. It, it also brings me to my next question, which is, about you um, and how you think others might be describing your leadership style and how that leadership style has impacted the way in which you viewed uh, becoming the founding dean and also in creating the mission, vision, and value? Oh, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, so I think that most people would probably describe me as having a democratic style. Um, I believe very strongly that 10 smart people are about a thousand times smarter than one reasonably clever individual. Uh, and so whenever possible, I really do and have consistently throughout my whole career um, try to be as inclusive in leadership as possible, so long as we're giving enough direction that the boat continues moving forward um, and that, you know, we're not encountering any big calamities. And really, um, when I think this, uh, this acquired great meaning to me, um, when I was working in Bangladesh uh, back in the early 1980s for five years, and my role um, at, at that time was to teach um, recent migrants, very, very poor rural migrants who were now living in squatter uh, slums in Dhaka, Bangladesh. This was about five years or so after Bangladesh had become an independent nation. And these women had no education. They didn't have a second or third grade education. They had no education. And so they were, they were uh, and cholera, as all, all types of diarrhea, but particularly cholera, were uh, at that point a tremendous uh, threat to everyone's health in Bangladesh, particularly children, where at that time over 250 um, of every thousand children born would die before the age of five. So I, I was, you know, working with them in the slums as a pediatrician and teaching them how to make um, ORS. And all one day, these women with no education came to me and said, why are you just teaching us how to treat diarrhea? Why aren't you teaching us how to prevent diarrhea? And I thought about that and thought, wow, I need to be using and working with these people as partners. I should have thought of that. There's no reason that I should have um, needed them to tell me that. But if they could tell me that, they can probably tell me so much more. And so I, I won't carry on in this line any longer about this particular episode, but 
every, an unfolding of their remarkable abilities and capabilities and insights into how to proceed to make things work so much better for them in those slums that never could have happened if I remained in charge and directing things. So I learned from that lesson for the rest of my career. Um, now, you know, you can't always use a democratic style. And, and so when push comes to shove, I can go into a military style, but it's not my preferred mode. And as soon as I feel that we can step out of that, I do. Mm, I, yes. And uh, I think we're all, we're all better for that. Um, as you mentioned it when you're evolving um, and creating uh, and envisioning it is really important to get the input of others especially those that are going to be impacted by whatever it is the organization or the individual is trying to accomplish what what I'm also very interested in is is your perspective of the overall state uh, of healthcare in the United States we talk often about uh, the fact that so much time, energy, and financial resources are spent on the treatment of the sick, um, where we know that it, that really impacts just a small percentage of overall health and wellness, um, and that we really ought to be spending much more time focusing on the social determinants of, of health. So with that as a backdrop, what is your perspective on the overall state of healthcare in the United States? And how do you think the new school of medicine will impact it in, in, in a positive way? So that's a great question. And as unfortunately, as, although I love being a physician and not for one second do I wish I had taken on a different role in life, um, I'm not very proud about what actually has occurred in healthcare in the United States. Um, during my career, sort of on my watch, as it were. Um, uh, since the 1960s, the U.S. health decline relative to our peer nations has been pretty substantial. So back in the late 60s, the average uh, life expectancy at birth in the um, OECD nations was 70 years. Um, and by uh, 2015, it had increased to 80 years. So that's a gain of 10 years over, um, you know, about 40 years, which is really quite good. But in contrast, in the U.S., life expectancy in the 1960s was 71, a year longer than the average of the other OECD nations. But by 2015, it had only increased by seven years. And so now, actually, um, we had compared to the OECD average of 80 years, we are actually below the average of the OECD nations. And um, so that's a substantial decline. Um, so whereas uh, we had been in the upper teens in rank order, now our rank of the 43 nations is 28. And I mention this not because I believe that health is a competition between nations but because there is absolutely no reason that we should be decreasing in uh, compared to many of these countries that have far, far, far fewer resources. And, uh, you know, to your point, putting in um, way uh, smaller proportions of their GDP into health than we are. But perhaps the most concerning thing, the most concerning aspect of this is that life expectancy in the U.S. decreased in 2015, and we now believe it's going to be decreasing again in 2017. We won't have the final closure on that for a couple more months. 
Not since the great flu epidemic in 1916 to 1918 have we seen a three-year decrease um, in life expectancy in the United States. Now, um, the cost of our health care, though, has greatly increased during this time period uh, relative to where it was for us and uh, to our peer nation. So, for example, back in 1980, Denmark, Germany, France, and the U.S. Um, all were spending 8.5% of their GDP on health. Now, Denmark, Germany, and France all have substantially longer uh, life expectancies. And if you look at any pretty, pretty much any metrics of health, they're all doing way better than the U.S. But whereas our um, percent GDP that's going into health is now 17%, Germany is 11%, France is 11%, and Denmark is 10%. Um, and what's worse is between 2016 and 2026, we expect at the rate that we've been going in the U.S., that our health expect, um, expenditures are going to increase by another $2.3 trillion. So they'll go from 3.3 to 5.7 trillion. Uh, and again, none of the other countries show this kind of growth. So there's nothing to support that these additional dollars are equated with substantial health improvements in the United States. Uh, so I think we've got a real big problem. Yeah, the statistics are staggering. I appreciate the way in which you've described it. It's a, it's a bit uh, different than the way we typically read about it in um, popular you know, journals. It's obviously a very, um, uh, it's a topic of a, of a lot of interest just for citizens that aren't necessarily as steeped in the industry as, as you are or, or as I am, but they stereotypically talk about it uh, in terms of health outcomes. The fact that you're now comparing it uh, uh, to longevity and the decline in uh, in longevity within the United States is is interesting. Again, staggering. The question is why? Why is it now that we're actually we have diminished returns and that we're focus that we're facing uh, aging uh, in 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 reverse at this point, right? We're, yeah. we're we're focusing on people dying earlier. So why why is that occurring? Well, that's a great question, and um, I can think of a a few reasons. Um, First, our expenditures are not appropriately targeted to need. Um, the U.S. invests less in social services than any of its peer OECD nations, even though the socioeconomic based needs of the U.S. population are estimated to account for 40% of health needs. So, by contrast, by the way, um, the health care itself is estimated to account for, you know, what, what we do as doctors is estimated to account for only 10% of the contribution um, to health outcomes. So here we have this tremendous imbalance, knowing that the, the social needs account for about 40%, the health needs about 10%. And yet in our country, I've already told you that about 15% of our GPD goes to healthcare. And a far smaller, about 5% of our GTP goes into the social needs. And this flipped ratio is not present in any of the comparison uh, countries amongst the OECDs. And for all the rest of those countries, a higher proportion 
of their GDP is going into meeting the um, social needs than in the health um, the healthcare needs per se. And and let me be clear, both of these are contributing to health, uh, but it's the kind of of health costs that they're addressing. So that's that's one concern that we're not spending our dollars wisely. Um, the second that's also a not spending our dollars wisely is that um, we aren't going to get much better by putting a lot more money into the health care of, say, the upper half of economically of our population. They're doing fine. They look comparable to the, um, the health uh, care of um, other nations in, you know, other that I would posit are like our ideal nations where we should be. It's the people in the bottom half of the income bracket, and just the bottom half, I'm not talking about the bottom 10% even, um, that need a, a lot more support. And it might not be, as I've already commented, just health support. It might be social support. But that's where we're seeing the great divergence in health outcomes between our population and other nations. And so if we are going to improve the health outcomes in the United States, we really need to be focusing both on that other segment of the population and at looking at different ways um, to to put um, you know, to to support the overall health of them. And finally, and you've mentioned this already, this is very important. Treating diseases is a very expensive and much less um, effective way of bringing about a healthy population than preventing health, uh, preventing disease in the first place. And we've done this in the U.S. We just don't do it very often. So actually, we have among the best statistics in the world now in terms of smoking compared to all of our peer nations. So we can bring about uh, preventive programs that are effective, that make a huge difference. But we've done it very poorly for most of the other areas. Thank you, Bonita. It's very interesting to hear where the United States fares in comparison to other industrialized countries on health outcomes. And it's also encouraging to hear that there's hope. Um, if we do focus time and energy on social determinants, um, in addition to obviously providing care to the sick, we can really make a difference. All of that being said, though, uh, technology plays an incredibly large role in other industries. And I'm interested in understanding what role you believe technology can play in overall health and wellness. Well, you know, that's a really fascinating question. Um, because as, as I've thought about it and I've read, um, I think a lot of what might have set us down a path um, leading us to where we are right now that I've already described um, is technology. In other words, um, prior to sort of the the era of technology, you know, before everyone had a car, before we really began to develop fantastic imaging uh, instruments, incredible ability, abilities to analyze the human genome, et cetera, um, a lot of what happened in medicine was uh, a great empathetic relationship between the physician and the patient. And physicians spent a lot of time out in the communities in their patients' homes. When I was a child, my pediatrician, when I was sick, would come to my house. Um, 
as technology became more and more significant, it became harder and harder to do that because the technology was large. I mean, think of an X-ray machine, uh, you know, a CT scanner, etc. Um, and also, we had now transportation mechanisms that could bring people to much further distances in centralized places where this expensive and very effective equipment was. And so, I think it very much contributed to um, the removal of the physician from the community level and from an understanding of what was going on in the house of the individual patient. Well, now we are uh, totally in the midst of, you know, the technological revolution. But when you think where it is now, we're talking about much, much less expensive technologies, technologies that are affordable for most people, and much, much smaller, more portable technologies. And so this is why we're seeing the advent of telemedicine. And I think that if we are thoughtful in the way we deploy telemedicine, it could be the equalizer very easily. It should be the equalizer that suddenly patients from middle and lower income um, uh, families and, and communities have equal access to providers. And this would be a quite wonderful thing. Um, so uh, I, I don't see major impediments to that other than a lack of will on the part of the medical profession. In other words, if we really um, are coupling our, our recognition that we need to be addressing preventive needs, social needs, and we need to be working with technology to increase access into people's homes, to increase people's access to us without demanding that they use very cumbersome um, systems to get into our hospitals, we should be able to really use technology to start to turn around this inequality and in outcomes that we've been talking about. Mm, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, digital technology and uh, just technology in general has really transformed almost every industry, uh, you know, in, in worldwide and, uh, and healthcare is, um, it ha has to make up some lost time, <laughs> but yeah. certainly, uh, it, it could have a, a significantly positive impact on, on health and wellness and, and treatment of sickness. Um, which, which leads me to my next question. And, and I think this is, um, one that may be difficult to answer, but you, you know, at the end of the day, uh, the clinicians um, are one spoke on the wheel of 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 health, wellness, and the treatment of sick of the sick. Um, what we see happening um, within the industry is that companies are forming collaborative partnerships. Um, such as providers with payers, payers with the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and any type of iteration uh, of those. Um, I'm wondering how you think Seton Hall's new School of Medicine will prepare these future generations of clinicians for the shift towards cross-sector collaboration. I think that the specific question you're asking about collaborations between providers and payers is part of a bigger picture of, of something that you um, asked an initial question about earlier and that is the cross-disciplinary collaboration. So I think the examples that you've given of providers and payers and, and working with insurance companies and working, setting up 
you know, ACOs, et cetera, are really important so that our, our incentives are for value as opposed to for the amount that we do, because there's absolutely no reason to believe that the more procedures, the more studies that you order, the better the healthcare is, that we really need to work to define what really does appear to make a difference in, in the identification of this disease, in the treatment of this disease, and uh, um, expect that one is going to get reimbursement for what this should be costing as opposed to for every single study that you do. Um, but at the same time, I think we need to be helping our, our physicians that we're training as well as people from other disciplines um, to understand the way we can look at problems from different perspectives. Because I think that the isolation of physicians in many ways has led them down into this, these narrow pathways of, um, you know, primarily treating illness and primarily treating illness on a, you know, here, here are the number of studies that we do to identify it. Here's the, you know, the treatment protocols, but without thinking in a much more holistic manner about that, that patient. Um, so at the same time, I've mentioned that we're going to have a three-year curriculum. And so the fourth year, we are building in a number of options for those students that choose to stay for the fourth year. And, and these include now set up a um, several joint degrees, a joint master's degree along with the M degree, MD degree, um, or a graduate certificate. So we have a master's degree in business administration that would be health administration, a master's degree in business administration. Um, we also have um, research um, a focused year, and we have are working with two pharmaceutical companies so that um, students could actually do their research, and it could be either more basic science research or, to your specific point here, population health research. So in other words, looking at this question of setting up incentives and programs that will bring about the best value-based care um, to give them direct experience in this. Um, we also, um, we have, as I've mentioned, uh, a very strong population health division is being set up at HMH. And so uh, students could do a year-long project with that. Um, and we also have, um, as I've mentioned, throughout our whole curriculum, extensive cross-disciplinary training. And in fact, the whole curriculum is essentially cross-disciplinary. We don't break it into little quadrants of, you know, it used to be you'd have Monday would be for anatomy, Tuesday would be for pathology. Uh, to the contrary now, all of those are integrated together as we look at organ systems. And, and frankly, there are a number of medical schools that are doing this approach now. Um, but where, again, we are different from many, not all, there are a couple others out there doing this now, is this strong emphasis, longitudinal emphasis across the whole track on population health. And perhaps the most unique aspect of our curriculum that I only briefly mention is, is the Human Dimension Program. And this is a three-year-long course, and the whole purpose of this course is to really understand at literally ground level, out in the community, in families, not just with patients, 
a single patient, but the whole family, understanding what's going on to make health and, and illness occurring out in the community so that our doctors can start working with the community and with other disciplines to really change that. And to give you an example of the kind of thing I'm thinking about, just think of Flint, Michigan. I mean, that was a practicing clinical pediatrician, um, Mona Hana Tashi, who was the one who put the pieces together and figured out that really this was lead that was coming. And really these, these complaints that were coming from the families that were saying the water tasted different ever since they had switched the water supply. Um, this was someone who was immersed enough in the Flint community living that she was able to come up uh, with a correlation with the very mild overall increases she was noticing. Of course, any increase in lead level is very upsetting. And to package this together and realize what was happening and because of other partnerships she had established with engineering, with law, was able to become a change agent with that mm. community. That's what we want from our physicians. It really is a new way of training future medical professionals to address community health and wellness because through their training, which is the most important part of who they become ultimately as clinicians, you're going to be giving them exposure to real, uh, real families, real health issues that, they'll, that will uh, create the types of physicians they'll become ultimately. It's, it's amazing. I, I'm, so, I'm, I'm so energized to hear this perspective uh, because when I think about my children and my children's children, I know that things will be better for them, that um, it won't be as chaotic as it has been for my generation and my parents' and grandparents' generation when everything was so disconnected, and, it's, and, and sometimes it still is today. Um, but you're really creating a new way of, of delivering care and, and, and focusing on health. I, I'm, I'm really excited. Well, thank you. I, I'm excited talking to you. I mean, this is this has been really fun and really exciting. But yeah, I mean, um, it, it's a real privilege to, as I said at the beginning, it's an amazing privilege to be able to start a new medical school. I just have one last question for you, sure. and then I will let you I'll let you go and and do what you do best, which is training the future leaders, future. <laughs> great physicians uh, of, our, of our great nation. So my question is, what do you want your legacy to be as a leader in the health industry? Well, uh, it's sort of simple, but all at the same time, kind of grandiose. Um, I want to be remembered as the founding dean of a school of medicine in New Jersey, whose bold vision that was by no means just my vision. This was a shared vision amongst initially 50 people and now hundreds and hundreds of people, um, will become a reality. Um, it's bold, but we can and we must achieve it. We can't do it alone. Uh, our partnerships are a core element of our mission. Um, and we'll be working with our graduates, but as we've discussed, we'll be working with a whole lot of other professions. And just as, you know, when I describe to you the demise from my perspective or the, you know, the, the slow downhill course of outcomes of, of health in the United States, 
that occurred over between 30 and 50 years. Um, so we're not going to see this outcome, you know, in the next five years. But I do believe that we should be seeing some strong measures of it, at least in New Jersey, uh, in the next 10 to 15 years, maybe sooner. Um, and I do believe that uh, as we start watching programs that are trying to do the kind of things that we're doing, and care transformation is occurring in, in many places now around the country, this value-based care as opposed to um, uh, procedure-based care uh, and reimbursement for that, that we're going to have a, a very strong sense as, as to how this is working and what we can do to make it better if we pay attention and that we are driven by the outcomes and not driven by the finances. Um, that is that we're able to get people engaged who recognize that maybe not as much money will become pouring in to institutions, um, but that it will be much, much better for our nation and for our population. So mm -hmm. I think it's achievable and I think we're gonna measure it. and. Yeah, nothing would make me more excited than to be the founding dean of a school that was playing a major role in bringing about this care uh, transition, this health outcome transition in the United States. That's a wonderfully articulated legacy. We, when we started this podcast series, uh, we committed to introducing our audience to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders um, and having them share with us some practical examples of how they've demonstrated uh, collaborative mindset and critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, uh, for patients and the communities that they serve. And I want to thank you because not only are you a wonderful example of a health ecosystem leader, but you are creating an army of health ecosystem leaders that will truly redefine the state of the health industry in the future. So I'm, I'm really excited uh, that you shared your story with us and I'm uh, excited to watch and uh, see what happens. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for the series that you're doing and for your interest in this kind of uh, development, um, because that will stimulate more interest and much, much increase the chance that we're going to be seeing um, many creative pockets of this uh, popping up over the state and over the country. And that's what we need. So thank you for your very important work. Oh, thank you very, very much. We look forward to keeping connected. Wonderful. Bye now. Okay. Take good care. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.